We're nearing the conclusion to this series. As you know, we've been laying the foundation, and we're, this week we're going to get... We've, we've been practical throughout some concrete stuff, this week a bit more, and then next week, very, very much so. so. And yet I hope you're not like, oh good, let's get to the concrete stuff, because if we didn't get this foundation laid, we're going to be in deep trouble. So... I'm going to just briefly review again and where we've been. I'm going to try to go through this quickly. Uh, But we started off uh, in the introduction um, with what is worship, the heart of worship. And if you could just remember this, worship, broadly speaking, is everything that you as a creature owe uniquely and exclusively to your creator. That, That sums up the whole posture of worship. And so we then looked at internal worship, which is all of life. Your whole life should be worship because you're a creature, always. And God is the creator, always. And so everything you do is lived in relation to him. Your whole life should be worship. After that, though, we come more specifically to external worship. And so, so if internal worship is common, external worship we would describe as holy. It's, it's set apart. Um, so we have uh, private external worship. The next one on the slide. I'm sorry, I thought I had that. Never mind. So private external worship is simply when you're at home and you have the hour of prayer. When you set aside a time for, for prayer, for calling on God's name. Um, and so then when we take it a step further, we have what we call temple worship. And temple worship is when instead of you doing it behind a closed door, setting aside that special time, we all gather together for this external temple worship. This is doubly holy. Not only is it uh, external worship, it's external temple worship. And so we, we are warned against egalitarianism. We're warned against this idea that all times and places and activities are equal and all the, the idea that there is a sense in which all of life is holy. Uh, and I think I mentioned this before. I've heard of a book titled Every Moment Holy. Well, in one sense, that's true. In another sense, it's absolutely not true. Every moment is not holy. Otherwise, in a sense, there's nothing, there's no meaning to holy. Because holy is set apart. Set apart from what? Set apart from the only moments that are not holy, that are common. This is not common. This is holy. All right. So those are our categories. Then we moved on to primeval worship, which is Cain and Abel and Seth and Noah. And we saw in particular that worship is calling upon the name of the Lord, invoking his name. And that's, that's a loaded, wonderful phrase. Then we looked particularly at natural worship, Versus the next one is religious worship. So natural worship is simply recognizing that everyone knows they ought to be praying to God and to the true God. Everyone knows that they ought to be calling on his name. But how we do that now as sinners, how we worship God, how we approach his presence, we can't just do that because I know how. God has to show us how. So we can't think like worship is the one place God needs us. No, Worship is, above all, the place we need God. 
and we need him to show us how to do this. So then we came to patriarchal worship, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in particular. And in patriarchal worship, we looked at, look at the name that is called upon. Um, the name, when we call on the name of the Lord, we're calling upon God as he makes himself known to us. When God tells us his name, he's telling us who he is. When we call on his name, we can only call on him if he's told, up, told us about who he is. And so we see in particular, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their building of altars and sacrifices and calling on his name, that worship is dialogical. Do you know, you know what that means now? True worship can only happen in a dialogue, which, which God initiates. So God speaks, and we respond by calling uh, upon the name that he has made known to us. God speaks, and worship is our answer to God. So... Uh, We come then last week to Old Covenant worship, and we saw four things. Worship is fundamentally communal. So you can no longer fulfill your obligation of worship to God unless you worship him congregationally, which goes against our individualistic mindset today, or against our um, technological mindset today, that I can worship God while watching the church service on TV. That's not biblical. It's not rooted in theology. Um, So worship is fundamentally communal, and that's beautiful. Worship then is fundamentally covenantal. What do we mean by that? Just this. Worship is the formal maintenance of and the formal enjoyment of the covenant relationship in covenant dialogue with God. Okay? So worship is maintaining the covenant relationship we have with God. That's what worship is. And then thirdly, when we sing together in temple worship, we're a temple choir. We're a priestly temple choir. So singing on Sunday is not just something that, oh, it's one of those things we do. And I'm not a singer, so I don't really go for the singing part, but I go for the preaching part, or I, I go for the Lord's Supper part. No, singing has been commanded by God, and he has, he has placed you all in the temple choir. And that's, that connects with the communal nature of worship. We're a community, and so worship is communal. We're all in the temple choir. And then finally, we saw that a temple requires the distinction between omnipresence and God's special presence. God is here today in a way that he is not at my home over at 222 Nettle Street. Now, God is here today. He's omnipresent in one sense. He's just as much at my home still as he is here. But he is here today in another sense, in a way he is not there. And in a way he is not even where anyone else is at home. Like, you know, so there might be a Christian at home today, but God is not there the way he's here. And this is something we have to grapple with and understand, because this idea of omnipresence, which is a biblical doctrine, 
has been wrongly applied. So that we say, well, God is everywhere. God's at home too, just like he's here. I can worship God there because he's there. When I say, and I would just say straight out, no, he's not there. No, he's not. Not like he's here. Because this is God's house. Not this is God's house. This is God's house. And so we have to remember that you cannot know the presence of God in the way fully unless you come to meet with him at his house. And that's a beautiful thing. So that, that brings us to this idea of drawing near. We are drawing near today to God at his house. Okay, now today we come to new covenant worship. So, let's put this together. Because in the New Testament, the covenant has changed. We have a new covenant, right? What does that tell you is going to happen with worship? Worship is covenantal, we know. So if the covenant has changed, worship changes. Now, we have to be careful what we mean by that. Some of the basic in your, uh, some of the basic in your handout covenantal forms of worship have changed, or we could better say have been fulfilled. So, where has it changed? Well, we don't have an altar anymore. And we know we, in the Roman Catholic Church, they have an altar. There is no altar. This is not an altar, right? It's a table. So we have no altar because in New Covenant worship, all that the altar represented, when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob built altars, right? When there was an altar at the tabernacle, it's been fulfilled in Christ's once for all sacrifice on the cross. Right? There's no longer any physical temple. The temple, the physical structure, the stones in the temple, was essential to worship in the Old Covenant. But we don't have that anymore because all that the temple represented has been fulfilled in Christ who tabernacled among us, right? And who, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So there's the temple. We don't build temples anymore. There's no longer any special tribal priesthood. We don't have a Levitical priesthood in New Covenant worship because all that that priesthood represented has been fulfilled in who, brothers and sisters? In Jesus. He, he is all in all. He is beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, right? In him, all things have come to their completion and fulfillment. And so Christ, as our priest, offered himself up. What was the job of the priest? To offer up the sacrifices. So Jesus was not only the sacrifice on the altar, he was the priest who offered himself as the sacrifice. And now... As our high priest, he intercedes for us at the right hand of God. What a beautiful Savior. What an all-sufficient Savior. So we see then the wonderful newness of new covenant worship. See, obviously, if, if I said suggested, I said, how should we worship, brothers and sisters? Well, we need to build an altar, and we need some animals for sacrifice. You would know I had not moved to the new covenant yet. There's been changes. And yet, 
So not only do we see this newness of new covenant worship in in external form, no temple, priesthood, altar, and in substantive fulfillment in Christ, who fulfills these forms, but we also see the newness in in your handout, the guarantee of worshipers who now worship in spirit and truth. So John chapter 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And and that hour is now here. And such people the Father seeks to be as worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Brothers and sisters, you know, this this is a terrible, this is a weird thing to say, but you know, I, This church, given enough time, because it's made up of flawed human beings, this local body, given enough time, will fall. There's no church in the history of the church that for 2,000 years has lasted because because that church stayed faithful. But God's church, Christ's church, his true church has lasted 2,000 years and will last until Christ comes again. But what I want to say then is, given the reality of that in 1,000 years, this church may not be here. Okay? Yet, brothers and sisters, let us labor to be a church that stays faithful and that looks always to the future. Let's, let's labor by God's grace to be a church that worships in spirit and in truth. Having then affirmed the newness of new covenant worship, it is important to remember that even though the covenant has changed, we got a new covenant, the essence of what worship is has not changed. That's important. That means that temple worship, this worship, must still be shaped in your handout and defined by the covenantal, communal, and dialogical nature of worship. Now, I just used some fancy words there, but we've been spending the last four or five weeks Getting ready, you use those fancy words. That's a theology of worship. So let me say it like this. Under the new covenant, which is now, right? God is present with us. He is present with us, not only by his spirit, but the spirit works in and through the word. So God is present with us, gathered for worship, in and through His word. Worship then is just like it's always been since the very beginning of time. Worship is our response to God's revelatory initiative. He reveals himself through his word in this time and we respond by praying. By calling upon His name. While the new covenant advances the theme of worship, 
in terms of fulfillment. So when we come to New Covenant worship, we've been always, so far we've been adding more to our theology of worship. Today we're not going to add anything to our theology of worship. We're done. We're finished. Now that might sound crazy. We don't come to the New Testament and add more to our theology of worship. That was established in the Old Testament. Now the New Testament, as we'll see, confirms the theology of the Old Testament. But it adds nothing new in terms of a theology of worship. It reveals fulfillment. It reveals some new forms in terms of no longer an all, not really, really just fulfillment, because Christ fulfills the priesthood, the altar, the temple. So by the time we come to the New Testament, our theology of worship should be fully formed. And it's that theology that's going to shape our practice of worship today. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at the parts of New Covenant worship. And what I want you to do, and I'll I'll help us along in this, but look at every part of New Covenant worship and measure it by your theology of worship. And see how they fit. And now this is going to do two things. It's going to guard us from putting things in worship that should not be in worship. Because they don't fit this theology. And secondly, it's going to enable you to embrace the things we do in worship in a, in a more faithful way. Because you see them fitting this theology. That's, that's what we're going to work at here. So the first thing I have here is the Lord's Supper. Worship is covenantal, right? Is that part of our theology? Now, what is the Lord's Supper? What kind of meal is the Lord's Supper? Is it common or is it holy? It's holy. And what makes it holy? What kind of meal is it? It's a covenant meal. Now, worship is covenantal. Therefore, it is right that the covenant meal should be observed weekly. Now, I'm just going to say it straight out here that for years at this church, we did not celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't bother, I didn't think we should, I didn't think we needed to. So, this is not about, if I'm judging anyone, I'm judging my past self. Okay? But I believe I was wrong. Now, here's why. Uh, Worship is covenantal. It is right, therefore, the covenant meal should be observed weekly as a fundamental part of what temple worship is, and even as a sign of what it is. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus said of the bread, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now that word in remembrance is full of, chock full of meaning. Usually we say, remember, just call it to your brain, right? And I'm not saying that's what we say about this, but when we hear those words. But the point here is not just mentally recollecting something, I'm thinking about the event of Jesus' death. 
remembering refers to the exercise of the mind and the heart that is itself the wholehearted response to what I remember. So when I, when I remember in, in the scripture, it is to respond to what I remembered. Therefore, if you remember the name of the Lord, what does that mean you're doing? You're worshiping. To remember the name of the Lord is to worship him. So Exodus 3, remember this. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my remembrance name, or memorial name. But I should have just put, this is my remembrance name to all generations. See that? God says, remember me. And by remembering me, that means worshiping me. Exodus 20. You shall make an altar of earth for me in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. So how are they remembering his name? By worshiping him. Psalm 102. You, O Yahweh, abide forever. And your remembrance name, your name by which you are worshipped to all generations. Psalmist says in Psalm 45, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Now, we should be able to grasp more fully the meaning of these words. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. To partake of the Lord's Supper is to engage in a covenantal act of worship. Now, as often as you drink it, what did Jesus say? Do this as often as you drink it. It's interesting that sometimes that's been understood as giving us freedom to drink the cup less often. Interesting. So Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it. And we hear him saying, I don't really care how often you do it. And whenever you get around to it, right, no one would say that. But maybe that's kind of where that goes. Whenever you do, make sure you do it this way. But in fact, Jesus means do this every single time that you do it as an expression of worship. To me, in thanksgiving. In fact, therefore, uh, um, the assumption is that we will want to be remembering and worshiping Jesus in this way as often as we are gathered for covenantal worship, because this is an act of covenantal worship. As a covenant meal, let's root it in theology some more. The Lord's Supper epitomizes the dialogical nature of worship as well as God's initiative in the dialogue. Worship is a dialogue, right? What about the Lord's Supper? What's happening in the Lord's Supper? Is there a dialogue going on there? Well, number one, the Lord's Supper is a visual word in your handout. 
that God speaks to us. So when you see the table set with his holy meal, that is a word that is communicating to you. That is God's word to you. A visual word that we only know what the word is because it's been explained in the written word. And we hear that word and we take hold of that word by faith and respond in thanksgiving. So think about it like this. In the Lord's Supper, God assures you. Be, be, get ready for the Lord's Supper in this. God assures you that since you have been made a partaker of Christ through faith, you now have a spiritual and an eternal life in you that is being nourished unto the resurrection. So this supper, we eat it, shows that we feed on Christ. We feed on Christ through faith. Not through the physical act of eating, feeding on his actual physical body. But by eating the meal, God tells us that he is nourishing us through faith as we feed on Christ. And we respond to that word that God speaks to us in this meal by partaking of it with thanksgiving. What did Jesus say? Do this in remembrance. That means do this calling on my name. Listen, take the meal calling on my name in prayer. In remembrance means in thanksgiving. And then Jesus himself sets us the example. In every place in scripture, which is four, five, four places, where the Lord's Supper is discussed, thanksgiving is a major theme. Luke 22, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. How much more should we, as we take the cup and hear God's word to us through this meal, respond in prayer and the giving of thanks? The Lord's Supper is not only covenantal and dialogical, it's communal at its very essence. 1 Corinthians 10, since there is one bread... And you could also say one cup. I mean, now we have a lot of cups up there, I know. Uh, but the idea is one loaf of bread and one cup from which we all share together. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. This is, this is what enabled... Are you seeing the Lord's Supper rooted in our theology? With good intentions, and I I say, I mean with really good intentions, some have desired to put a positive light on what might be seen as neglect otherwise by cautioning us against observing the Lord's Supper so often that it becomes what? An empty ritual. I just want to say that the solution to something not becoming an empty ritual is not by doing it less often. That's never the solution. The difficulty here is that this appears to treat the Lord's Supper 
as more sacred and more holy than every other part of temple worship, because that's why that's the one thing we don't do every time we gather for temple worship, because it's more sacred and more holy. And then we argue on that very grounds, because this is sacred and because this is the most holy part of temple worship, we're going to do it less often in temple worship. Let me say this. A biblical theology of worship. Are you seeing how we do this practically? It will help us to see that the Lord's Supper, as the remembrance of Jesus, is in a very real sense the central act of all new covenant temple worship. Now, there's another sense in which our worship is centered around the word. Right? All worship should be centered around the word. And yet the central act of all new covenant temple worship is embodied in the Lord's Supper. Therefore, let's get practical. I'm just going to say that the frequency of our observance of the Lord's Supper. At one level, we've been given freedom. At one level, we have freedom in how often we observe the Lord's Supper. At another level, we need to know that the frequency of our observance must not be determined by personal preference. Or by tradition, because this is the way the church has done it forever, once a month, or once a quarter. Neither should the frequency be determined by sincere and spiritual motives. A lot of times we can think that, well, I have a sincere and a spiritual motive. But, and that's good, that's good. But it's not enough. The frequency of our observance of the Lord's Supper should be determined by our biblical theology of worship. And that's why we went to doing this every, every week, because of a theology of worship. Let's come to baptism. Now, I, now I, bet I don't need to do it. We can stop the sermon now, and I could, you, you figure the rest of it out, because you're equipped to do it. You've been given the tools to do this. But what about baptism? Well, baptism is covenantal. And we know that because if we didn't have the new covenant revelation of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you couldn't have baptism. How do we know that? Because we are to baptize in the name of who? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You could not baptize in the old covenant in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That was impossible. So there it is in Matthew 28. And I, I, you know what's there. I, I, won't, I won't read it more. But baptism is also dialogical. Are you thinking through this with me? Because baptism is simultaneously a visual gospel word. When we see someone get up there, and we see them go into the water and come back up, and we hear the water, God is speaking to us through that visual word accompanied by the written and spoken word. And so what is God saying to us? God is assuring us that he washes away our sins and he makes us clean. That's what that visual word tells us. And he's also saying to you and to me that 
that he joins us to Christ in his death so that we're dead to sin. And he joins us to Christ in his resurrection so we're alive to God to walk in newness of life. That's the word he speaks to us. And then we respond to that word by calling on his name. Ananias said to Paul, Get up and be baptized, and God will speak his word to you in that, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Dialogue. The Apostle Peter equates baptism with an appeal to God for a clean, for a good conscience. And then baptism is communal. So it's, there's a dialogue happening in baptism. It is covenantal at its core because we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's communal because Paul says that all true believers are united by the Spirit in one baptism. So one bread, one baptism. And by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So I've said this to you before, but when we see a new believer being baptized in the baptistry on a Sunday morning, we do not suddenly become spectators. We don't suddenly become just witnesses. We are participants. How are we participants? Because when we see that person being baptized, we're reminded, that is my baptism. I I am with that person because that baptism is mine. And my baptism is now theirs. And we see and we hear afresh God's gospel word to us. I mean, I need, I need more people being baptized for my own sake. So that I get to hear and see God's word to me in, in baptism. It's a beautiful thing. And we respond to that word by calling on his name. Now, obviously, baptism is not necessarily to be observed weekly because of the sovereignty of God and how often and who he saves. Right? So that's, a, that's the one unique element of this. And I have a footnote on this. There's a lot more going to be in the book in terms of notes. In one sense, the book will be shorter than my messages. You'll get through the book faster than you got through this. But there's also a lot of notes. If you have further questions, they might be answered in the notes. What about the, we come to the reading and the preaching of the word? Now, last week, we saw that worship is responsive. So worship means we are responding to God's initiative. Or maybe that was two weeks ago. And we saw that that means that temple worship must be centered around the reading and the preaching of the word. A lot of churches are minimizing the reading of the word or the preaching of the word. um, um, Because they don't understand, they don't have a theology of worship. And so we're called to to center our worship about God's revelation so that worship can be a response to God. In the baptism, I'm sorry, uh, so this is confirmed not only in principle and in precedent, but in command and precept, in New Testament command and precept. So the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy so that he will know how one ought to conduct oneself in the household of God. So Paul is specifically saying, this is, how you should, this is how you should conduct yourself in church. And he says in 1 Timothy 4, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. 
to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those who hear you. In 1 Timothy 5, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So a lot of times we come to church and we feel like, okay, there's the song time, and then there's the lecture time, or the inspirational message time, right? Hopefully we don't have a lecture or an inspirational message, as it were. But instead what we need to do is view what's happening at this moment, see it always in the light of this unique context in which it's happening. Where is this preaching happening? It's happening at the temple where God's people are gathered for worship. This is part of the dialogue. So, insofar as I'm a man and you're men and women, you could say, well, it's horizontal. I'm talking to you. We're having a little discussion here and God's listening in. But insofar as I am a pastor teacher and my calling is to speak, as it were, the utterances of God, I am called not to preach my own word or my own ideas, but the word of God. And so the preaching of the word on Sunday morning is dialogical. It's God's word to us. It's a part of that dialogue. And then we respond to that word in prayer. There are implications here for what preaching is and what preaching should look like. I have often heard uh, sermon illustrations. And this is not a justification of the fact that I rarely use sermon illustrations. Okay? I'm, I'm not justifying that. But I am, I am saying that much of how sermon illustrations are used today is not in accord with the theology of worship. And one of the things that often is appealed to is that Jesus always told stories. And so we should have a lot more stories in our preaching One thing that I would point out, and this could be a longer discussion, but that the stories Jesus told were not illustrations of what he was teaching. The stories Jesus told were actually his teaching. Watch that. Jesus didn't teach them and say, how can I make this make sense to you? Let me give you an illustration. He said, let me teach you. And then he gave them a parable. And so now, what do we do today? We preach on the parables. In other words, Jesus' teaching did not need to be illustrated by his parables. Instead, his parables now need to be explained. 
and expounded in our sermons. So I'll just say this, insofar as illustrations are used, and there can be a subtle overlap, I'm not judging why someone used an illustration, this is not my place to judge, and it's not anyone's place to judge, but insofar as illustrations are used to keep the attention of an audience, to keep an audience from daydreaming, like about this point in the sermon, I'm guessing they're going to start to be losing attention. So let me throw in a story. Or I'm guessing they might be getting a little sleepy at this point. So I'm going to throw in a story, and a story that, oh, it'll fit, it'll kind of go with what I'm talking about. But what's the real reason I'm throwing the story in? What's the predominant reason? That is wholly inappropriate in the context of, remember what this is? Worship. The sermon takes on the nature of a performance. The truth is treated as something that on its own is dry and boring because we need something more to spice it up. Insofar as illustrations are used, however, to explain and to give deeper insight into God's revelatory word, then they are appropriate to the calling of the preacher and the dialogical nature of worship. So the theology of worship begins to broaden out. Okay, prayer. What is worship? What is worship? Prayer. So you think we ought to pray when we worship? (laughs) That should be integral to what happens here. And what we see in churches is that prayer is boring, especially long prayers. And in a sense, long prayers can be boring, and some long prayers should not be offered in church. And we'll see why in a moment. But, but there used to be the pastoral prayer, and the pastoral prayer might go on for some time. But pastoral prayers, especially long ones, have fallen out of vogue and out of favor in the church because we no longer have a true theology of worship. Now, that we should be praying in church is clear in the New Testament because Paul writes to Timothy, once again, telling him how we should conduct ourselves in church, in temple worship. And he said, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. And he's talking about in every place, in every gathering of the church, to pray. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, I said that not all prayers are good in church. And the reason is because um, prayer, first of all, is our response to the revelation of God's word. So our prayers, especially in the temple, should be saturated with scripture, with scriptural truth. In other words, this means that when someone leads in prayer, and anyone who prays here on Sunday morning is leading in prayer. Uh, We'll get to this later, but it's why I don't believe a woman should pray in church. In church. Because that constitutes a leading in prayer, a leading in worship, and ultimately, as we will see, a teaching and admonishing of the body. In this unique context, now I just got way ahead of myself. We're going to talk more about that. And how I'm speaking specifically of this unique 
time that we call temple worship. This time. That we could mark off by, at, like we had, let's say we had at the beginning, the call to worship. I mean, before that, or in prayer meeting, uh, we can discuss this later, I'll come to it later. What about a woman praying in prayer meeting? I can see that as different. When we come to temple worship, there's a unique, holy, set-apart quality to this time. And I think it's what Paul was talking about when he said, I do not allow a woman to teach, or to, to, I, the woman should remain quiet in the assembly. So, and we're going to talk about how that's beautiful. Again, it's not about, it's not about if, I'm a, if I'm a woman, and I know it's easy, you might say it's easy for me to say because I'm a man, but it's not about what I can't do. It's about the beauty of this. So we'll come to that. But leading in public prayer should be, by default, a teaching and admonishing of others with the truths of God's word. That doesn't mean that I'm using my prayer as a secret, covert sermon to you, right? But it does mean this. I'm going to quote at at length from this book. Because the Lord's Day worship service is a corporate service, a public service, the prayers in those services are of necessity corporate. You know, some people, and it's fine, they're not leaders. Maybe that's why. But when they pray in a group, they pray as though it's just them praying to God. And there's not an awareness that I'm leading a body in praying. In public worship. Now, on another hand, we don't want to be praying always because, oh, what are they hearing me say? Oh, everyone's listening to me pray. Let me, let me think of my special words and be eloquent in my prayer. Obviously, that's wrong. But neither can, should we just ignore the fact that we're praying and leading in public worship. So the prayers of necessity are, are partake of the qualities of corporate ordinances. This means that public prayer will differ from private prayer in both its subject matter and its aim. Think of, for example, how loudly should you pray at home in your closet? Does God care? No. You, can, you don't even have to pray out loud. You can pray in your heart, and God even hears that. Now, how loudly should you pray when you're praying, leading in public worship? Don't pray in your heart. Now you've got to pray loud enough so the person in the back row can hear you. That certainly has applications to even prayer meeting, right? You shouldn't pray unless you pray loud enough for everyone to hear you, because that's not edifying. So our prayers take into account others. Um, Namely, public prayer must edify the body. Prayers offered in public are audible, not silent, must be intelligible because they aim at personal, not personal, but public edification. My prayer should be edifying to those who hear me. Their purpose is to bless both God and the congregation. There are, in a sense, two audiences. One on earth, one in heaven. And one is primary. God is primary. I'm not praying to you. This is precisely the Apostle Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 14. If one prays in the Spirit, whatever exactly that means, so that one cannot be understood, the prayer may be a sincere expression of thanksgiving. You may really be praying but the other person is not edified. So when I pray, I am to edify the body and not just edify two or three of you. 
I'm to pray in such a way that I'm confident that the entire body is being edified through the prayer I pray. Better are five intelligible words, Paul says, that may instruct others. So in public worship, prayer should be instructing people. Paul said that. Then 10,000 words in a tongue. Now he was referring to, maybe I should say, there was prophecy. He was relating it to tongues as well. We'd have to go back and look at the context of that. Public prayer, while addressed to God, is for public edification and instruction. Prayer is another kind of pulpit speech. Public prayer is closely related to preaching, though also very different. Because faith comes by hearing the word of God, the use of scriptural language and allusions in prayer was understood to be of critical importance. The congregation will be edified as scripture enriched, impassioned prayers are offered in corporate worship. Okay, so prayer is obviously a part of worship. Congregational singing. We saw this last week. Temple worship, temple choir. Okay, dialogue. Well, in terms of the dialogue, singing can take either the form of prayer. So when we sing, we may be praying to God. Or when we sing, we may be proclaiming biblical truth. God's word to ourselves and to one another. So the dialogue in singing can, in a sense, go both ways. Uh, Paul's instructions in these passages assume the church gathered for worship. Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Notice that, to one another, to the Lord. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. What are we to be doing in our singing? Teaching each other. Admonishing each other. So, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, the songs we sing to God every Sunday are at the same time edifying one another and teaching each other and admonishing one another with the word of Christ. Paul is commanding congregational singing. That's what he's commanding. We could translate it literally, I want you all to be speaking to yourselves and I want you all to be teaching and admonishing yourselves with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. As you all sing... With thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. Does that fit with communal worship? The communal nature of worship? Going to church history, uh, Pliny the Younger was, a, was writing to the emperor Trajan around the year 100 AD. So that's pretty early. And he says this about the practice of the early Christians. It was their habit on a fixed day, Sunday, to assemble before daylight, because not all of them were given the day off on Sunday. And they would recite forms of words by turns. That seems to mean 
responsively. Maybe a leader would speak. They, the congregation would respond. Or maybe there were two groups responding to each other. But they would recite a form of words, which was likely a hymn or a psalm, to Christ as a God. He says a God because he was, a, he was not a Christian. So let's just say this now. If an, if an individual were to speak to the Lord in a song in this time, or if that individual were to speak by himself to the rest of the assembly with a song, then we need to understand what's happening. What is happening? Let's say that, um, you know, I asked Jeff Lee or Ralph Stella, I see two men over there, to get up, one of them at a time, come up and sing a song. What are they doing now? They're either leading us in worship, prayer, or they are teaching and admonishing the assembly with the word of Christ. Because that's what worship is. That's the theology of worship. Now, and last, we come to the congregational amen. Now, this is not actually its own ingredient. It's just a practical application of all the other ingredients. So, it's a theologically appropriate way for you, as for us, as a congregation, to voice our agreement with all the scripture readings. The scripture readings and preaching is God speaking, and the prayers is us speaking back to God, right? So what's this congregational amen? Well, you, you're, not, you're, not reading, you're not doing all the reading of Scripture. You're not doing all the preaching as a congregation. Uh, um, you're not doing all the prayers. We're not all of us saying the prayers together. So how do you voice your participation with all of these elements of worship that the Bible has prescribed? Well, it's theologically appropriate for you all to say, Amen. Because of the communal and dialogical nature of worship. It's also biblically appropriate. To say it's theologically appropriate is to say it's biblically appropriate. But biblically means I've got a text for it. I actually have a a verse to read. uh, A a specific one, more like a proof text. So 1 Chronicles 16. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen. And praised the Lord. Maybe they sang a song then. Nehemiah 8. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. While lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Psalm 106. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. And if we think, well, that's Old Testament, which that's a problem if we think that. But we do get the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14. Paul said, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen? Notice he didn't just say, how will he say amen? He says, how will he say the amen? At your giving of things. Since he does not know what you are saying. So that 
phrase, and all God's people said, does not need to be an empty ritual, but something rooted in what? Can you tell me what the word is? In theology, right? So, I'm not just saying, oh, let's be more traditional. And there's some parts of tradition I think maybe we should get rid of because it's not rooted in the theology of worship. There's other parts of tradition maybe we should bring back because it is rooted in the theology of worship. So the congregational amen should be a joyful expression of your agreement and of your wholehearted congregational participation in temple worship. Now let's sum it all up in three ways. A scripture, a quote from church history, and a confession. So we'll start off with, start off with the scripture. And in the book of Acts, Luke sums up what the early church did. Now by the way, we're going to come to this later, but are you seeing how simple this ought to be? Are you seeing just what it is and how simple it is? the simpler we'll see worship is, the purer it is. In term, not in terms of pure hearts. I can't guarantee a pure heart. But there is a way to worship that God has ordained and that we want our theology to inform. So Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now, take your theology. You got your theology? Where's dialogue? Well, what's the apostles teaching? God speaking. And what are the prayers? Man responding. And what's the breaking of bread? That's the Lord's Supper, in which we saw God speaks and we respond. What about the fellowship? When we hear that word, a lot of times we can think that that means talking to each other or communicating with one another. That's not what, that's not what the point is here. Notice how he calls it the fellowship. Fellowship in the Bible, we, well, we associate it with fellowship potlucks, fellowship meals, all that kind of stuff. Fellowship in the Bible refers to a union we have with one another. We who are many are one body. That's the fellowship. So the Apostle John says, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, our union, our oneness, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he's not talking there about conversation after church or a potluck or even a one-anothering time. He's talking about the oneness we have with God and therefore with each other. We're one body. Therefore, let's, when the early believers devoted themselves to the fellowship, how do they do that? If you want to devote yourself to the fellowship, you do that by gathering to listen together to the apostles' teaching to break bread together and to engage in the prayers together. 
Because all, this is the beauty here. Because all of the prescribed elements of worship, there is nothing that we should be doing in worship that has not been prescribed in the Bible. God has told us exactly what we ought to do here. Now, because of the, all of the prescribed elements of worship, worship is fellowship with God. Because we do all of those things communally, together with one another, the result of this is by default, whether we like it or not, a unique, a very unique, powerful experience of the fellowship we have with one another. Brothers and sisters, what are we enjoying right now? Fellowship. Right now. Uh, When we sing, what are we enjoying? Fellowship. When, when, um, When someone leads in prayer, what are we enjoying? Fellowship. Because it is the fellowship that we, now we partake in these things together. When we take of this Lord's Supper, what are we going to enjoy? Fellowship. And yet that fellowship is not a, all of a sudden I'm focused on you. It is a focusing together on the Lord and a focusing together on hearing his word to us. That's the fellowship. So when Luke describes what the early church did, did you notice how simple that was? Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, the prayers. How simple should it be? Right? And yet those things are rooted in a deep and beautiful theology. Writing an apology for or a defense of Christianity in the middle of the second century, so 150 AD, give or take, uh, Justin Martyr describes early Christian worship like this. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. Now, I love reading this because, brothers and sisters, this was happening... Just, yeah. This was happening 1,850 years ago. That's when this was being written. And so they all gather together in one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Wow. Our time wouldn't permit, I don't think, as long as their time permitted. Then when the reader has ceased, the president or the the pastor, the leader, the teacher, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine mixed with water are brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people assent, saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each, and a participation of that over which thanks have been given. And then to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. You see how simple that is. 
That faithfully reflects what we see in Scripture. What are the ingredients and elements that we introduce into worship that maybe don't really fit with this theology of worship that we've seen? That's what we'll look at next week. But I really don't want to do that for you. I want you to already be going there, seeing it for yourself, asking yourself these questions. Some 1,500 years after Justin Martyr, so still a long time ago for us, the London Baptist Confession in about 1677 and then 1689, it was published later, offered this, this description of the various parts of religious worship. The reading of the scriptures, preaching, hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, and prayer with thanksgiving, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of one thing, religious worship of God, to be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Moreover, solemn humiliation or humbling of ourselves with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions like when the early church sent, a, sent out uh, Paul and Barnabas in the first missionary journey, ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. Now, I hope now you saw that those, we just got a list of things, didn't we? A list. Reading, preaching, hearing, teaching, singing, uh, prayers with thanksgiving, baptism, Lord's Supper. But they're all parts of one thing temple worship. And so what we have in these parts of religious worship is the formal maintaining of and the enjoyment of the covenant relationship in covenant dialogue between God the creator and his creatures whom he has redeemed. This is not just a rhetorical question I'll ask you, but you don't have to answer. (laughs) What greater privilege could there be? What greater privilege could there be than to gather every Sunday in the special presence of God to engage in this most holy of all activities, temple worship. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing to us your worship. Thank you for revealing yourself to us and for giving us the new covenant for for Christ in whom whom the altar and the sacrificial victims and the temple and the furniture in the temple and the priesthood have all come to their fulfillment in Christ our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord our King, and we confess him and his name this morning. And we thank you too that as we move 
to the new covenant and the fulfillment that we have in this. Thank you that the theology has not been cast aside. But that we only see that theology in all the more beauty and clarity. As we gather in these times to hear from you and to respond in prayer. Lord, may we always just keep it that simple. May we remember, may we affirm in every way that we can the communal nature of worship, the covenantal nature of worship, the responsive and dialogical nature of worship. And as we do this, may we learn to rejoice all the more every single Sunday we come and gather. And Lord, above all, we pray that not only would we have a good theology of worship, not only would our practice of worship be conformed to that theology, but Lord, may our hearts always be renewed by your Spirit. May we be enabled to genuinely and truly by faith call upon your name and know that you hear us and that you have answered. Lord, may we, may we truly each week hear your word because you by your spirit are present here in and through your word read and, and preached. Guard and protect this church this body, this congregation. And we ask it for your sake and for your glory. And in Jesus' name, amen.